I'm not shocked or surprised at all when things happen in the world. Oh, there's a shooting here, there's a bomb here, uh, people are killed here, this is happening here. This is a horrible thing, but it doesn't surprise me. I see the black vulture picking at the carcass in the road. We do Tai Chi and Qigong to compensate because we are not living a lifestyle of a hunter-gatherer. A lifestyle that was not only the physical activity, but it's the stress. I met Jim Keller five and a half years ago. He was teaching Tai Chi, Qigong, and Jing Yi um, at uh, Bridge Yoga in Lancaster. I was interested in Taoism. I was interested in Tai Chi and learning more about it uh, because I was teaching Taoism to ninth graders at the time and wanted to broaden my horizons. I was often the only person in class on Tuesday evenings, I believe. So Jim and I uh, got to talking about various things, civilization in general. And he explained to me that one of the reasons why he practiced Tai Chi and Qigong and taught it was to compensate for all of the ills that civilization had wrought. And at the time, I didn't really know what he meant. So Jim Keller is the one I blame, ultimately, for sending me down a very dark path in terms of my worldview, because he was the one that turned me on to Daniel Quinn. I learned much later that people read Daniel Quinn when they were younger, uh, in their teens. Um, I came to it at uh, the ripe old age of 35, and um, it managed to change the way I saw things pretty dramatically. Um, he also mentioned Derek Jensen, who I came to later on as well. Um, both of these writers, among many others, are ones that, of course, deeply, deeply critical of civilization, as we have already um, investigated here uh, on this podcast. Uh, so um, in this, the fourth episode of What We Will Abide, I sit down with Jim Keller some years after first meeting him and having not seen him for some time to discuss his ideas about why he teaches Tai Chi and Qigong and why he is a religious practitioner of Tai Chi and Qigong. As you will pretty quickly gather, the underlying assumption here in this conversation is that there are two ways of living that human beings have practiced in their existence on Earth for anywhere from 400,000 years to a million years. You pick it. Um, there's the hunter-gatherer lifestyle, and then there's the civilized lifestyle. The two are very different, although one has been in existence for a lot longer than the other. It will um, be immediately apparent that Jim prefers the hunter-gatherer lifestyle, and the way that he lives his life is an attempt to emulate as best he can, given numerous limitations, the hunter-gatherer lifestyle. So with that as an introduction, 
I bring you to my conversation with Jim Keller on what we will abide. Well, I'm Jim Keller, and I've been for a long time practicing uh, the Chinese internal health arts of Tai Chi and Qigong, and I've been teaching it for a long time, too. So that's what I'm doing right now. But I spend most of my time practicing. That's one way that I can cope with what's going on. And that comes from a specific outlook on the human being. So from a, from a uh, civilization versus hunting-gathering uh, scenario, you have hunters and gatherers have a certain body. They have a hunt. We have a hunter-gatherer body. We have a genetic hunter-gatherer body. When you live in an agricultural or civilization type of society, you are doing things that go against the hunter-gatherer body. Okay, so that's why there's a lot of health problems. That's why there's, there's a lot of diseases and cancers and so forth. When a person does a physical activity like hunting and gathering, walking, running, uh, uh, activities that vary on a daily basis, mostly, the, the body loves it. The body loves that and the body will be healthy and fit and have general longevity. But when you do something like agricultural work or work in civilization where you sit at a desk for eight hours or you work in a factory and doing uh, re repetitive motions for eight hours then you're not doing what the human body is, you could say, designed to do. Which brings up a very good, interesting question, theologically. <laughs> if there's a God and God created us in our present bodies to be hunters and gatherers, I mean, if, if our bodies are hunters and gatherers and we are supposed to not do that, why do we have these hunter-gatherer bodies? Because that's the only efficient way for our bodies to move. And it, it, the parallel to me, the analogy to me, is a, is a car. You have a, uh, a sports car, a low sports car that goes very fast, blah, blah, blah. If the designers of that sports car said that car is designed to be on roads that are rutted, pitted, rock-filled, uh, up and down grades that are horrendous, everybody would laugh at them and say, no, that car is not designed to do that. That car is designed to do something else. But that's the analogy we have with our bodies. Our bodies are hunter-gatherer bodies. When we do anything else than hunting and gathering, we are driving a sports car down a rutted road. And so we have problems. Of course we have problems. We always have problems. Why, why is everybody surprised that we have problems? Of course, we're not doing what our bodies want to do. And to me, that's the biggest, it's the biggest truth. But when it comes to the human body, that's very clear. So when people run and they walk and they do exercises that are varied, <clears throat> that is replicating hunter-gatherer activity. It is not hunter-gatherer activity because hunters and gatherers didn't do exercise for the sake of exercise. They did things in order to get food, get water, get shelter, all the basic necessities of life. But we can at least replicate that. But then you have the situation where that's no longer enough. Okay, so it used to be that just doing those kind of exercises or that kind of physical lifestyle and good nutrition, which hunter-gatherers had, everything they ate was nutritious for them, is no longer enough because now we have cancers that have introduced and, and tuberculosis and all kinds of diseases. So no matter how pure your life is, you're exposed to that. So that's where Tai Chi and Qigong come in 
because these are compensating exercises. These things compensate for the fact that we live in civilization. So we used to live one way, and now we live another. I think that the average person can probably grasp that. It's what most people call prehistory because they don't have much respect for the, the sort of hunter-gatherer lifestyle, even though it, 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 it lasted for about 99% of the time human beings have been on the planet. Why the change? Somewhere along the line, let's say eight, 9,000 years ago, we went from being hunter-gatherers to becoming agriculturalists. What happened? How come we suddenly decided to live inefficiently? How come we decided to drive the sports car down the rutted road? Well, that's the great question. I don't know. I don't know if anybody's addressed that. I've read a lot of people, and they don't know exactly why that is. I mean, there would seem to be an advantage initially. Instead of having to move and pull up stakes when the game starts to 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 lessen and there's less firewood, and that's that's the reason you are semi-nomadic because you can't stay in one place. You have to move on. Why they decided to stay in one place? Uh, was it the advent of the compost pile? I've read that. A compost pile, you know, you, you throw your waste materials on a pile and then it comes up and that, that could have been the start of agriculture and say, hey, look, things are coming up. We don't have to move. There's food right here. Um, some writers have suggested there's been a there's been three locations in the world where this happened in a in a, a very short time period. I don't know what they mean by that. Less than a thousand years or hundreds of years uh, between them. But the Middle East that's that's supposed to be the birthplace of agriculture. Fertile crescent. The fertile crescent and the and that that crop was wheat, where wheat was wild. Then it was it was uh, domesticated. And in in the Far East, it was rice, and in the Western Hemisphere, is corn. Uh, I don't believe in aliens, but you know, it makes me wonder sometimes <laughs> what happened that in a relatively short amount of time, three areas of the world started to mes- domesticate a crop, and they were different crops. It wasn't like people from the fertile the fertile valley brought wheat over. To the Western Hemisphere, no, it was corn. And they didn't take it over to the Far East, no, it was rice. So I don't know. That, that's a really good question why all of a sudden, after maybe hundreds of thousands of years, 200,000 years, in a relatively short amount of time, certain cultures decided to domesticate a certain crop. It, well, okay, so big mystery there. That's a mystery. It's a big mystery there, and it's not one that, that Quinn, whom we've talked about, mm-hmm. has ever really tried to... <clears throat> I mean, he has his sort of theories that they're a little bit vague. Uh, he takes it from that point and then makes very specific points about how that culture, agriculture, becomes the dominant culture, right? It's the idea basically that once you realize that these crops are coming up and once you decide to domesticate plants and animals, well, then your population begins to grow. You need to feed that population. Population continues to grow. Well, then what do you need? More land. And what does that lead to immediately? Conquest. And so then we have... <coughs> A sedentary population, which is encroaching upon a semi-nomadic population and basically giving them a few options. Either you join us and be our slaves, or run away, or we'll kill you. I mean, essentially, I mean... Right, the hunter-gatherers always lose. So civilization to hunter-gatherer is cancer. Once it's released, it's just a matter of time. So then we get, essentially, nine, ten thousand years ago, the rise of civilization because... Or the rise of at least a monoculture in which all these other cultures um, get get taken over. 
So, but th- th- it comes back to the next question, which we were talking about, which is like earlier, which is you were saying, and you can say a little bit more about what you said earlier. <clears throat> well, there's so much inefficiency in this civilized, I've used air quotes, culture, whereas you were talking about e- inherent efficiency amongst hunter-gatherers. Can you say a few words about why you think that hunter-gatherer culture was inherently efficient and why this culture, <clears throat> just give a couple examples of why this culture is so blatantly inefficient. Well, yeah, the, the, the documentation is, is, is pretty pretty extensive. I have a really good book that talks about the, the greatest economic society, which is hunter-gatherers. Economics is not just about dollars, dollar bills. It's about how a, a system runs. So the average working time for the average hunter-gatherer worldwide was, a, was about 12 to 18 hours a week, 15 hours, more or less. In some extreme cases, like up in the far north, it's, a, it's more. But 15 hours a week for everything that you need, food, clothing, shelter, is much more efficient than the initial agriculture societies where they're working you know, 12, 14 hours a day to raise the crops. Just, just look at it. If you've ever worked on a farm, which I have, I come from a farmer society. If you work on a farm, look at the things that you're doing that you don't do when you're hunter-gatherer. I worked on a farm. You plant seedlings, grow them in a, a, a greenhouse generally, then you you have to prepare the soil, you have to till the soil, you have to have the proper pH, you finally plant, the, take those seeds from the greenhouse, you put them out there, then the work becomes with, we used to do mulching, but it's all weeding, 90% of the work I did on a farm that grew crops was weeding, 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 and we didn't do any spraying. If you're spraying, then that's work too, and that that costs money, and, and there's a whole negative thing about the, the pesticides and herbicides. So you're doing that, watering constantly, because it's always the weather. It's always too hot. It's always too cold. You're covering crops. If you're a hunter-gatherer, the only thing you have in common with what an agriculturalist is, does is to gather the crop. You go and gather the crop. That's what you do at the end of an agricultural season. As a hunter-gatherer, all you have to do is know where the crop is, know where the plants are, know when they're ripe, and gather them. You don't plant them, you don't water them, you don't fertilize them, you don't weed them. So right there you can see the efficiency, just in plants, the efficiency between hunting and gathering and civilization. And the same thing with raising an animal. And hunters-gatherers don't raise an animal. They don't raise animals. They just go out and they kill them. They gather the, the animal. You have to have knowledge. You have to know where the animals run. You have to know about the animals. But you're living in an area where there are a lot of animals. Because if you didn't live in an area where there's a lot of game, you would be moved out of that area. And the work involved, the time involved, the inefficiency of raising an animal. So there you get just, just animals and plants. You have the inherent inefficiencies of just basic agriculture versus hunting and gathering, just in food. So now what? It, we, you do what you do, you said, because there's got to be something else. There's got to be another way to, to kind of compensate for the damage done by the inefficient way of life. And the question is, like, why do we do it? Right. Why do we do Tai Chi? Yes. Okay. Yes. So for me, we do Tai Chi and Qigong to compensate because we are not living a lifestyle of a hunter-gatherer. 
a lifestyle that was not only the physical activity, but it's the stress. Hunters and gatherers had a certain amount of stress in their life. That's why we have adrenaline glands. They weren't stress-free, but they had an appropriate amount of stress. So the, you know, you have people who are driving to work every day will have uh, adrenaline rushes up to five times a day just from driving on the road at work, at home. Well, this is far more than the average hunter and gatherer would have, in a, say, in a month's time, for example. So we are exceeding just in our stress levels, our physical stress, our mental stress, emotional stress. So either you compensate for that or you pay the price somehow. And society overall pays the price. But as an individual, Tai Chi and Qigong, exercises of a civilization, can compensate for the fact that we have diseases that we didn't have as hunter-gatherers, which they can work on. We have stresses that we didn't have as hunter-gatherers, which they can work on. The dilemma is you have to do more. So uh, say the average person is working 40 hours a week. That does not include travel time, preparation time. So now at the end of your, stress your day, home. stress at home, at the end of your day, wow, now I got to do Tai Chi or I got to go to the gym because I've been sitting in an office all day. When we are used to on an average of working 15 hours a week and the rest of the time is relaxation, socialization, dancing, which is exercise too. So our, we are not genetically capable over a long time of just working, working, working 40, 60 hours a week and then having to do replicating and compensating exercises, then that interferes on our family because we, you know, human beings are social creatures. We're, we're tribal. How do Tai Chi and Qigong for you help compensate for the disease of civilization, whether they are in fact um, manifest themselves physically or certainly I think we will agree that there are just innumerable uh, emotional and mental diseases of civilization as well. Well, Qigong in, in China was, was the equivalent of yoga in India. And after years and years of living in a civilization, and China has a rich history, rich history of civilization, they had to come up with something to compensate for all the health problems that people were developing that they did not have as hunter-gatherers. So Qigong was an outcome, an outgrowth of, of civilization and, and its ravages on, on the people. And what, what, these, what Qigong and, and yoga, at least in intent, do are heal diseases. How? Uh, Qigong, and I could speak for Qigong and Tai Chi. Do so. They, they do that by having precise alignments of the body. And, and let me just do a sidebar here. More and more, I, I just heard a story the other day on, on radio, and I heard one before, where the the back, the lower back of people who are civilized is too uh, curved. The curvature of the, of the lumbar spine. It is not supposed to be curved like it is. So most people, if not all people in civilization and agricultural societies has, have this uh, advanced curvature of the spine, which causes problems. It causes back problems. And they're finding out that early stages of agricultural people, before they really got deeply involved with agriculture, and hunters and gatherers did not have that. They did not have that spine. So, for example, in Qigong, and this kind of differentiates from yoga, I know that, but in Qigong and Tai Chi, we make a big deal about flattening the lower part of the spine. 
So that is seen as some kind of an advancement, but it really is just going back to the way the human body is supposed to be as a hunter-gatherer. So that's a thing that actually cures back problems because it puts your spine in proper alignment. So proper alignment is one big thing. Proper breathing is a big thing. And then getting the flow of energy, or qi as it's called in China, flowing strongly through your body has a big impact on things like tuberculosis and diseases. And it has a quite a history of curing those kind of diseases, diseases of civilization. The thing about Tai Chi, which is different than Qigong, Qigong was, is a pure health system, healing system. Tai Chi started off as a martial art. And they found out very quick that people who did Tai Chi as a mar- practicing as a martial art became very healthy. If they were practicing as a martial art and they had diseases or, or other health problems, those health problems were cured. So it was that, that flow of energy through their body with the precise uh, body alignments. They could see that. But more importantly, the people who did chi- Tai Chi as a martial art at a high level could actually project chi. Okay, now this is a, a weird concept and it's hardly done anymore. There are some teachers out there who still practice that. They practice, you know, pretty much hours and hours every day for years and years on end. And they develop the ability to not only strengthen the flow of energy or chi through your body, which is good for health, but they strengthen it to a, a very large amount and have the ability to store it and project it and use it as internal power. So Tai Chi is an internal martial art. And that is, it's called an internal martial art because it uses Qi, internal power, as one of the power sources in self-defense or martial arts, where most martial arts use muscular tension. So you, yeah, you can feel that. If, If somebody hits you with muscular tension, you can feel that. But if somebody hits you with internal power, it'll still knock you over. But it's a different way of generating power. So there's evidence there. I personally have felt it. I have felt masters project energy into me. And it is totally 100% different than somebody just tensing up, throwing a fist and hitting you in the gut or something. It's totally different. So it's a different way of projecting power. But people have been doing Qigong and Tai Chi for health for hundreds of years with a lot of empirical evidence. That means it's worked generation after generation. The other thing, that knowledge, this, the, just the knowledge of the hunting-gatherer versus the civilization means that I'm not shocked or surprised at all when things happen in the world. Oh, there's a shooting here. There's a bomb here. Uh, people are killed here. This is happening here. This is a horrible thing. But it doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me one little bit. I remember when I was teaching, I was teaching a Qigong class at a senior center in Lancaster on 9-11. And right before I was teaching the class, the, the, the TV was on, and everybody's watching the towers fall over, and people were shocked. People were just in shock. People were expressing their disbelief that this is actually happening. You know, they're like pinching themselves. This is not real. They were questioning their religion. They were questioning, is there a God? And I was like, you know, well, gee, big, it's, not, it's a big deal. But it was not surprising whatsoever. It's civilization. What do you expect? It's fertile ground for it to happen. It's fertile ground for people to hate and want to strike out and want to go to war. It is not fertile ground 
for people in a hunting gathering situation to want to go to war with their neighboring tribe. It's not fertile ground. Why not? Why not? Because you depend on your neighboring tribes. You trade with your neighboring tribes. You're intermarried with your tr- with your neighboring tribes. If you fall on hard times, your neighboring tribes, even though they might have a different philosophy, religion, whole culture, are going to help you out. Why? Because someday they're going to need a little help. So you live in this this slight tension where you're not going to put up with them just traipsing over your property without permission, your territory, uh, your temporary territory, but you help each other out. Is it, I, I, I mean, is it enough for you? or Because for me, um, I, I haven't found the right compensatory thing yet. I, I, I've been trying to change my life so that I, I get more in touch with living instead of sort of being afraid, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, but I don't know. I haven't quite gotten there yet. Um, are you? Are you there? <clears throat> Qigong and Tai Chi are compensating exercises. If you combine them with replicating exercises like running, swimming, aerobics, things like that, you put that whole bag together. You are just beginning to approach the physical health and conditioning of the average hunter gatherer. Not to mention their emotional and mental state. So, so all of this is falling far short of what your average Joe hunter and gatherer is. So we're always going to fall pretty well short. I think one of the big things I found is trying to live simple. Spiritual people of all religions, in the esoteric portion of the religions, have always tried to live simply. And that's a big thing. I have taught religion classes and teach religion classes, and a lot of students will say, okay, well, I'm an atheist. And and you said, well, you know, tell me a little more about this person is thinking, what this person believes. And it sounds like they're more like an animist than they are an atheist. And so you sort of attribute, have attributed, and I've, I've run with this, and it makes a lot of sense to me, the notion that um, what animism essentially is, is just like holding everything in the natural world sacred, which I'm sure it differed from hunter-gatherer culture to hunter-gatherer culture, but we've completely lost touch with that. I mean, there are like movements to regain touch with that. But like, what is your take on, on, on how important that is and where you are with that? The notion that like living, living in harmony with the natural world is um, something hunter-gatherers did and something that largely civilization has done away with. Yeah, I think it's very important. The, the lifestyle of the hunter-gatherer, the physical lifestyle of the hunter-gatherer, what they did, goes hand-in-hand hand with what their belief system is, which was animism. Animism is a, is a religion or spiritual belief only for hunter-gatherers. And you can tell uh, a religion of agriculture because they, they pray for things, especially when it comes to agricultural things. God, send rain. I need rain because I'm not a hunter-gatherer. I just can't move down the valley where there's having rain. Please give me rain. Uh, animism is more of just, you know, hey, thanks for everything. Everything's right here. You know, if uh, if it's not right here, we move down the road and things are a little more fertile or there's a forest fire here. We just move to a different area. We move. We're capable of moving. But if you're sedentary, if you have fields, you cannot move those fields. People will steal your, your crops. So you, you ask your God for help. It's about divine intervention. And that... that that goes into the rest of, of your thinking. 
You always want God to help you. I'm sick. God, help me. Please help me. I can't help myself. I can't make it rain. You have to do that. So there's a distinct difference between those religions of agriculture and the religion of animism, where you're just grateful for everything's out there. There's the gods, the goddesses, or whatever the different beliefs are. But it's a spiritual thing. You you respect. So you take a deer, but it's done in respect. You don't want to disrespect the deer family. They might move out. Yeah. It always... It always kind of shocks me. Here's why I get shocked. By people who are very religious, say Christian religion, and I want to say, but God created everything on earth, but but if you're an agriculturalist, you want to get rid of most of the things that God created. I lived out in Arizona for for seven years, and I can tell you the Christian, the Christian ranchers out there, if they had a button, they would have killed off every bear, wolf, coyote, hawk, eagle, any kind of uh, a skunk, possum, they would kill them off. And my question was, well, is God a trickster? Did God create these animals? So are you smart enough to kill them off? Or what? Why are those animals? If you come from a purely creationism, why did God create animals that interfere with farmers' lifestyle? Because that is totally domineering. You are choosing what you want to live and what you don't want to live. And just on the plant scale, you want this corn plant to live and you want that lamb's quarters to get get lost. And that lamb's quarters, when I worked in the fields, at the end of the day, I would gather lamb's quarters because the nutritional value of it far surpassed anything that was growing in the field. But we have a product we want to sell. And so agriculturalists play God and they say, I don't want that. I don't. I want that off the face of the earth. I want this product. I never could understand how, on the one hand, religious people of the major religions could say God created everything under heaven and earth, and God apparently is supposed to be good and perfect, and at the same time, I got no problem going out there and killing as many species that I think were going to interfere with what I want to grow. Alternatively, Taoism, as you said, shows more respect to everything that has chi in it, which is every living thing. Right. Everything has spirit. Animus would say everything has spirit. Although I don't think most ancient Taoists would, would think of hunter-gatherer as a positive thing. They think civilization is a great thing. It's just that nobody's doing it right. So, you know, they were very positive. Well, you just got to do it right. You just got to do it right. But nobody ever gets it right. And so a lot of Taoists would retreat into the mountains because they did not want to be contaminated by civilization. In fact, they have a word for it in China. It's, it's being contaminated by red, dust or the red, red dust. dust yes. The red dust is you're being contaminated by civilization. But civilization, good thing. I wish they'd start doing it right. Civilizations can collapse. They've collapsed uh, primarily in Europe. They, they've collapsed, I mean, many centuries ago. But they don't have to collapse in one big shot. They can just fall apart at the seams. The seams literally come apart out of civilization and everything just goes into a, a, a low state quasi-civilization muck. That that can happen. Or people can leave if there's a place to leave. And that's what happened apparently in the Western Hemisphere where you had the Anazazi, for example, the Incas. These were civilizations. These yeah. were not hunter-gatherers. Yeah. They were civilizations, and they all collapsed, and people were able to move out. Does the planet have a chance? 
I don't think so. I don't think it does. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. If you had a dictator saying, you will do this way to save the planet, or I'll just wipe you off the face of the earth, that's the only way it's going to happen. It's it's hard for me to imagine a environmentalist dictator. I I, I have a hard time conjuring conjuring that Right. I can see dictators out there. Oh, they're, they're, well... There's yes, but several of them. An environmentalist dictator—that's a hard thing. But if the situation gets so bad, but I don't—I don't foresee that happening. But other than that, I can't see anything positive coming along. Thought it might be useful to offer a few of the titles of books that Jim references during our conversation, a couple directly and a couple indirectly. Jim mentions um, a pretty hefty volume by edited by uh, John Gowdy, G-O-W-D-Y, called Limited Wants, Unlimited Means, a reader on hunter-gatherer economics and the environment. He uh, would also recommend um, another book about hunter-gatherer lifestyle um, in the more spiritual realm, and that's Heart's Blood, Hunting, Spirituality, and Wildness. In America by David Peterson. And finally, a book by Desmond Morris, originally published in the late 1960s called The Human Zoo, which discusses the differences between living a hunter-gatherer lifestyle and a civilized lifestyle and equating uh, what it's like living in civilization to what it's like living as an animal in a zoo. You can guess what he concludes. So those are a couple of books that um, Jim offers as uh, kind of um, readers on uh, hunter-gatherer lifestyles, which of course we know about because hunter-gatherers still exist today, although they are in um, fast retreat. In addition, Jim and I talked extensively about the major differences between a hunter-gatherer diet and a civilized diet. That part of the conversation didn't make it into the podcast, but it serves as yet another example of all the different ways in which civilized life have led to the major health problems that the healing arts that he practices and teaches uh, attempts, attempt to contend with. And finally, at one point in the conversation, I asked Jim if he didn't think it were perhaps dangerous to fetishize the lifestyle of these hunter-gatherers. His answer, directly, was that no, it wasn't dangerous, and in fact, they could provide us with a great deal of knowledge about ourselves in terms of uh, our diet and things we may be able to digest, things we may be allergic to, and certainly in terms of our physical makeup. But for me, the question goes deeper. And I'm sure that Jim would agree that looking at hunter-gatherers for every single answer and for every single aspect of our culture, probably isn't the most expedient thing to do, in large part because so many of them have disappeared and we can't know how they lived or what they were like. Plus, I think that it is important to recognize that whether or not you agree that civilization is a good thing, in the end, life has changed so dramatically And the ways that we live, how we get our food, how we worship, how we conceive of ourselves and our identity, 
certainly our ties to the land, have changed so dramatically and irreparably that looking at hunter-gatherer lifestyles can sometimes be unhelpful. Or, as in my case, I suppose, like indulging in fantasy, trying to recapture a way of life which, for the most part, is long gone, and certainly, for me, would be impossible to engage in. I mean, if you put me in the wilderness for 96 hours, I'd be dead. Equip me with a few tools and a few basics about foraging and perhaps hunting and creating shelter and looking for fresh water, and I might last a little longer, but I certainly wouldn't like it. And I'd miss things like hot showers and ginger ale and watching TV on my iPad way, way, way too much. What we didn't really talk about, although we touched upon it only briefly, is this notion that hunter-gatherer lifestyle has been largely forgotten. Um, And actually, it's a lot more insidious than that. It's been stomped out of existence, kind of on purpose, definitely on purpose, as uh, we allude to early on in the conversation about uh, wars of conquest between civilized people and hunter-gatherers, and Jim said hunter-gatherers always lose. I get sad about that. I lament that. I read about indigenous people that still persist and the battles that they face and the battles that they ultimately lose against industry, against economy, against much more heavily equipped military, but mostly against public opinion, which basically has come to assume that there is no room for the uncivilized in this world anymore. And of course, the saddest part, the biggest lie and the thing that we all ignore with such fervor is that, as Jim alluded to many times, it's the hunter-gatherer lifestyle in large part which enabled life to exist and persist on this planet. And as any thinking person with open eyes can tell, and as Jim clearly also recognizes, as he mentioned at the end, our lifestyle is not in harmony with the planet, and if anything else, is hell-bent on killing it. So I'm with Jim in that I see the allure of living like a hunter-gatherer, but I'm not going to turn around and do it Neither are many of you, and so ultimately, where does that leave us? Thanks again for listening to this episode of What We Will Abide. Jim Keller teaches classes currently at the YMCA, and if you're interested, you can find him there on their Lancaster website. Original music is by Morning Stillness. The song is called Black Vulture. I see the black vulture picking at the carcass in the road. Here's the purifier, new messiah, times yet to unfold.